Welcome back, everyone, to the Frequency.fm podcast. I'm your host, Dan Thompson, with my co-host, Joe Brookhouse. How are you, Joe? I'm doing very well, and uh, I want to apologize ahead of time. I'm recording at home, so if there's some background noise like animal feed or children's voices, just know that I have a family and I have a life, and uh, it's in addition to this wonderful podcast that we do. How about you? How are you doing? Oh, things are good. Things are good. I'm just happy we get a chance to... Uh, to talk together. It's very difficult sometimes for us to coordinate time, uh, mostly because we're in extremely different time zones. We have a four-hour difference between us. So uh, I have the luxury of it being a little bit later. I don't mind being up because I'm a bit of a night hawk, but it's a lot quieter in my house at 10.37 p.m. than it would be uh, four hours back where you are. So uh, I'm, I'm fortunate. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Um, so there's some pretty exciting things that are that are going on right now with us. Um, you know, we've got back into a more standard release of our podcast episodes of late, um, but you can expect that things are going to pick up a little bit, at least for the next, uh, I don't know, couple of months. Why is that, Dan? Well, we do have a number of interviews already conducted. I know we had an, um, an opportunity to talked to a number of artists and authors. Uh, you did most of the interviews. Thank you, Joe. Um, but we want to get on a routine to get them out into your hands because we don't want them to sit. So we will be releasing these podcasts on a regular uh, two-week schedule. So I'm looking forward to that. I am too. Some great conversations, some great artists, and I can't wait to share them with folks. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of artists, I believe uh, today's interview is with who, Joe? Uh, it is with award-winning singer-songwriter Krista Wells. You probably have heard Krista Wells' name previously. She was the Songwriter of the Year, named so by the Gospel Music Association, and that was for Natalie Grant's recording of the song Held. But she's also written and recorded with the likes of Point of Grace, Plum, Sela, Sarah Groves, Nicole Sponberg, Sponberg and Jessica Campbell. Um, and uh, most recently, you've probably heard her Plum's recording of Need You Now, How Many Times, which has been on the overall airplay chart uh, for over a year. And a remix of the song was released to Dance Radio, who's also charting on the Billboard Club chart. So she's somebody whose work you know, even if the name isn't immediately familiar. Yeah, and I also noticed um, Plum Plum actually has made a comeback, I believe. Um, you haven't heard from Plum for a long time, but now making a comeback. So it's interesting. When you hear an artist on the radio, you automatically assume, assume that they wrote the song. So it's interesting to find out that it wasn't actually Plum who wrote her own song. So Yeah, and actually as we get into the interview, you'll hear a little bit more about uh, why it hasn't necessarily been Krista who's been recording the songs and why she's worked with other people. Great. Well, thanks, Joe. Why don't we go right into the interview with you and Krista Wells. Hi, this is Joe Brookhouse for Frequency, and this afternoon I'm very happy to be joined with songwriter, singer Krista Wells. And Krista, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be here. So I know you've got a, a new album, and it just hit, and I believe it was August 13th. So that's like a week from tomorrow, because today's the 19th of August, right? Yes, yes. Last week was the big week. I mean, as an independent, it's not, you know, 
it's not as big of a deal that actually we that week as it would be if I were on a label or something, but, um, it, but it's still the week where you, you talk about it the most and try to make every effort to get the music into people's hands. And yeah, it was exciting. It's exciting to finally be on the other side of the music of getting to interact with people and hear their responses to it and know that it kind of found a home with other people as well as with me. So when you say you're on the other side, do you mean because you're so often the songwriter that's helping get the song out there, but not necessarily the voice that's on the recording? Well, no. In this in this case, I mean on the other side of the project uh, oh, I see. Of, make, um, of the timeline. You know, you spend uh, we spent well, I guess in last November we began um, the Kickstarter campaign, so that's when we started really pouring into the effort of making this album come about and since then it's been fundraising and writing and planning and arranging and recording and uh, graphic design and packaging and just all of that stuff and then the promotion and uh, self-promotion is nobody's favorite thing as an <laughs> in independent art world so um it's just great to be on this side of the release i guess yeah interact with people so I, I don't think any artist is really a fan of promotion. At least I don't know many who are. It's uh, kind right. of a, a necessary evil. Yeah. Um, you made a conscious decision to go the Kickstarter route as opposed to trying to, to fund it up front. I think you indicated there was some nervousness associated with that. Can you share a little bit about that? Oh, my goodness. It is. <laughs> I've had so many great conversations with fellow artists who have done this, and we across the board, it is so... Hard. It is such a terrifying, stressful thing to undertake. And I had supported Kickstarter campaigns that I really didn't realize just how scary it is. But you just feel like you are just hanging out there in the wind, um, so exposed in your neediness. Yeah. <laughs> For someone like me, who's kind of always been rather independent and I think more reserved or more self-sufficient than I than I feel like I am, but that's, that's what I hear back from people over the last few years is, Oh, I, you know, you just seem like you don't need anything. And, but of course it's not true. And so this just brought it all out <laughs> into the light. And, um, it's hard cause you just feel like you're imposing on everybody. And, but you know, I, I just learned so much through it. I learned besides the humility part of it, uh, I learned that people really really value the opportunity to be a part of making something good and and lovely and not everybody is called to make music with their own voice or their own fingers on the keys but but they want to be a part of it and so I was just floored you know because I was getting emails saying thank you so much for letting us do this and I'm going are you kidding me you're thanking me for asking you for money <laughs> but I mean, I, I really felt like it created this this really cool community between all of us who were involved. You know, someone said, are you going to do it again next time? And I think it's too soon. <laughs> it's like yeah. just having a baby and being asked, are you going to have another one? I, I've got to wait on that. But <laughs> but it, it definitely was a good thing in the end. It it was. You know, it, it reminds me of what it was like when you were going to ask somebody on a date you 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 felt like the answer might be yes but you you're, you are hanging out there and hoping that they say yes it's like am i a popular person in high school <laughs> right and it, that moment feels like an eternity 
right, while you're waiting in limbo? Yeah. I didn't yeah. go on many dates in high school, but um, the few that I went on, they were terrified. <laughs> yeah. And with the Kickstarter campaign, there's a kind of a, you know, a, a jumping on board at the very beginning when you launch yeah. it. And there's this long lull. You know, I'm thankful I only did it for 30 days because it would have killed me. It was excruciating to, to do it any, <laughs> drag it out any longer than that would have been painful. But there's this very quiet space in the middle days of the campaign where nobody's really, it's just trickling in. And then at the end, people realize you're down to the wire. And I just, I was exhausted. <laughs> oh, I bet. Once you got that behind you, do you already have the songs written at that point? You knew what was going to go on it? Because uh, I know that you had uh, the other recording that came out, it's more than Rubies, right? That... Yep, with Nicole Witt. That's right. And that came out like in May. Yes. So we were actually writing for that right up until I did the Kickstarter campaign. So I had a a few of the songs either written or in process, more in process than complete for my album. But we were focused on the More Than Rubies album. And then I launched into writing over the winter because we took a break from um, performing so that was really my time where I intentionally stayed home and said, I'm going to write these songs. But some of them had been, had begun months before, but just were really hard to, to complete. And I, I don't know, people have asked me why, friends have asked, why was this one so hard? And I, I have a few guesses, but I'm not entirely sure. It just felt like a difficult delivery. <laughs> <laughs> Another reference to giving child. Uh, yeah, I have children. some experience with childbirth, so <laughs> I'm fond of those metaphors. Yeah, and I can't relate, and that's okay. Uh, let's. I want to take one of the songs because uh, as as I was stalking you on Twitter today, I saw that um, there was a a post related to the song "Come Close Now." I think the woman's name is Monica, who inspired that song. Um, she did not actually inspire it, but she has connected with it because of her own difficult struggle with illness in her family. Both she and her daughter have very rare illness. And um, so I've interacted with her some online, and she's just an inspiration. But in general, the inspiration for that song, um, it directly came from this book. So I, I owe him credit. Uh, his name is Daniel Walzer, and he wrote a book called To Make a Life. His parents have been friends of mine for quite some time because they work at Masterpiece Ministries with us in the summertime, working with the drama end of things, the theater department, so to speak. And um, they sent me his book dealing with his, his and his wife's struggle with infertility and then an adoption that did not go through and then a pregnancy that ended without uh, without a baby. Yeah. So they, but it was a really, it's a beautiful book because it's written by a man. So in in that sense, it, it's unusual because he's very vulnerable and really lets us have a glimpse at what it feels like to be the dad in that situation. I think we often hear from moms, and that's great. There are there are a lot of women who need other women to connect with their their loss through miscarriage or terminated pregnancies or adoptions that don't come to fruition. Yeah. But, but it was, Daniel writes like a poet, um, similar to Ann Voskamp actually. So he had a, a metaphor in his book where he, he was writing about what it feels like to be 
in this house that feels like it's burning down and all of this all of these people are rushing around trying to extinguish the flames and someone steps forward and just quietly walks in and opens the door and walks up and and into the room where you're you're strapped in this chair and and they take a seat beside you and they just share in your suffering and they they they're present in that moment with you and i was completely floored by by that and i'm someone who hasn't had to walk through extremely difficult times like that in my own life yet but i seem to be surrounded more and more by people who have and i feel inadequate in those moments in knowing how to serve and how to love and so when i read this i i said to daniel this book is so important not just for people who are walking in your shoes and need to to know they're not alone but it's important for us who are watching this thing and we're not sure how to love you through that and so come close now you know the the imagery in that song directly comes from Daniel's book song that's inspired by something you read um, somebody else's experience yeah the song held I know uh, is kind of three stories that come together that are not your own story right um, so do you find that you your inspiration for songs is more frequently coming through kind of retelling stories that have touched you or are they personal uh, I think there's a good solid mix in there um, I'm really you know I like I said, I continue to find myself in close proximity to people who have suffered much more um, greatly than I have. And I'm so drawn to them, I think, out of a desire for hope and assurance, because I know they have walked through the fire. And most of these people in my life are people who are amazingly intact, if you will. Yeah. Or they're not, I've said frequently in describing held before I've performed that. I, I've talked about my friend Benita in particular who um, lost her son who was two months old and, and inspired the first verse in particular of that song. And I've said she is has experienced great devastation, not only with the loss of her child, but several other losses in her life. But she is not living a devastated life. And she walks with radiance. I mean, this woman is beautiful. I mean, inside and out, she just um, I have learned more from her than just about anybody else in my life. So when I spend time with these people, I can't not write about. <laughs> I, it's, it, I have so much processing to do after hearing them share their stories. And so I joke about being a specialist in sad songs. Ben <laughs> 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 teases me about that. I have gotten better. I've written a few more uh, tempo songs, but, but I do... Um, gravitate towards these weightier songs. And I think it's because there is so much to be said about grief and loss and suffering. And a lot of times it has been overlooked, maybe intentionally, and by Christian artists, maybe we don't feel the freedom to really linger there. But I do feel free to linger there. And I feel like it's important. 
And so I just never seem to run out of different angles from which to approach it. But, the, you know, a lot of my songs are then just me dealing with my own, what feels like lesser struggles on the, in the scheme of things. But, for instance, on this album, several of the songs are me dealing with the things I deal with. You Are My Defense, dealing with the shadows that fall during winter months and during um, different seasons of struggle with depression. Yeah. Yeah, so there are, there are those. Shine is for all the little sisters in my life, but it's for me too. And that happens really, really quite often where I sit down and I think I'm writing for someone or about someone and it completely turns in on myself by the time I'm done. I get, because I realize pretty much anything I have to say to somebody else or teach or show someone else is something I also need to learn or be reminded of. I can certainly relate to the seasonal affective disorder. Mm-hmm. I live in Portland. Oh. Great place to live. I know that when the time change comes in November, that I've got four months to deal with fighting off that depression. Yeah. And that's that's a challenge because I know that in a couple of months, I'm going to lose my sunlight. So, mm-hmm. um, well, let me ask about another song on there because it's, it's the one that kicks off the album. So there's two things about Vanity Vanity. One is yes. this is a completely different sound than we've heard on previous recordings. And if I quote your press release, it's, a bigger, sassier record. Mm-hmm. And the other piece of that is, tell me a little bit about what inspires that song. You know, I, I remember this moment in the car when we were, Nicole and I were writing for More Than Rubies. So I remember driving to her house, trying to kind of generate some ideas for what we might write about that day. And I think the source of the word vanity coming into my mind was that my our pastor had just preached on Ecclesiastes and talking about the vanity of the things we pursue here and the fruitlessness. And at the same time, I'm a girl who struggles with vanity, you know, so on that level, on the, you know, the most um, frequent use of that word vanity, that's relevant too. And I remember driving down the street and thinking of that word and this line, vanity, vanity, how'd you get your hands on me? Just, you know, just kind of came into my mind. And I thought, oh, that's silly, but kind of fun. Maybe it's something, I don't know. Yeah. And to Nicole's house and I threw it out as an idea we might write about, but it didn't fly for, for the two of us. Nothing came of it. But um, I, the more I thought about it, I just loved the way those words kind of felt in my mouth and the way they just said something true to me. I just feel like it's so hard to escape the vanities of our life, whatever it is. And I, I've read several things by John Piper and Paul and Ted Tripp over the last few years about how we tend to live lives trying to steal glory from God. We want glory for us in yeah. one way or another. And that has always rung true to me. I see that everywhere I see it in myself. So I, I really wanted to write it. It was fun feeling song, but it was kind of scary putting it out there because nobody wants to admit that they're vain. I don't want to admit that, but, but I think we need to, to talk about it. grabbed me immediately, not just because of the sound of the song, but because as for myself as a songwriter, there's a certain desire for recognition to be influential for people to, to recognize you. And um, when I first heard that, I'll, I'll be honest, what I thought of was, I wonder if this is a reference to 
your songwriting success and then a ongoing desire to maintain that or to recreate that as you move forward in your career? You know, I, I don't think honestly that I had thought of that, but it's certainly true that it those struggles, they kind of permeate all the different compartments of, of our lives, I think. So let me kind of go back a little bit. You came on the radar for a lot of folks with the Natalie Grant song, Held. Yes. I mean, were you writing songs leading up to that point, or was that just something that occurred and then all of a sudden you have a songwriting career? Um, I had been writing, um, I mean, actually doing writing since high school, but I was not published. I was published before Held. Um, I had um, just a couple songs. I'm trying to think what was first. I think it was Day by Day with Point of Grace. And a couple songs on Plum's album, uh, Beautiful Beautiful Lumps of Coal. Um, so I, I was writing professionally before Held, but Held definitely surprised us all and opened up doors for me, for sure, that weren't open before. I saw this in your press release, but uh, you referenced some performance anxiety. You've been writing songs, you said, since you were a teenager. When did you start performing songs? And tell me, if you don't mind, a little more about kind of that anxiety that you feel. Sure. I mean, since I was about six, I always was drawn to music. So, of course, I was always signing up for musicals. And if there was only an adult choir, I'd sign up for adult choirs. I, I just wanted to sing, and that's what I spent my time doing. And... I don't remember feeling particularly nervous when I was young, it, but it definitely by the time I was in high school, it was full on where I just, I wanted so badly to participate and to share and I wanted to be given opportunities to do solos or things like that. But, you know, I could sing in private and I could sing in rehearsals. And then the minute it was the real thing, I just, I wanted to die. I just was yeah. so miserable. I, would literally have like hives, I mean, all over my, you know, chest and neck and arms and face. And I would tremble so badly that I, I couldn't control my vocal cords or my voice, um, couldn't sing with any strength. It was so painful to me because I loved music so much. And um, I still, you know, I had always wanted to be Amy Grant. Amy Grant was like yeah. my, you know, role model when I was very young. And and so I got to college and I had still continued to write and I would sing around my piano at home, you know, for, you know, we had a lot of people in our house all the time and we'd sit around and sing together and that was fine. But I got to college and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I've been saying that I was going to do this. Now I have to do it. Like I've, I've been saying this to everyone or, you know, all the people in my life. And now I have to actually put my foot on the pedal and do this. And I don't know if I can. And I would get, I was so nervous throughout that I would audition to sing in our chapel and I never had the opportunity. I was never given the opportunity because I was terrible at auditions. And, you know, I, I did join a, a band, some friends and I started a band, but even then I just was kind of glued in place. I didn't play piano in front of anyone at that time. I just stood at the mic and, yeah, it just wasn't fun. It wasn't fun anymore. And um, so I, re I had a conversation with a songwriter, songwriter named Dwight Lyle in Nashville and he encouraged me to focus on songwriting and I kind of felt off the hook. I was about 23 at that time and I said, great, I'm going to focus on songwriting. I'm done with this misery. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I would still have, you know, I still wanted to share these songs though. And so I would, I would sing in church or look for small opportunities or I'd be asked to sing at weddings, but it just lingered over for such a, a long time. And I didn't, 
expect that I would be able to ever perform my own songs. I, I don't, I can't really say what happened. There was, I was involved with Masterpiece Ministries, which we can talk about a little later. Yeah. And I was sharing, um, I needed to share these songs at this banquet we were doing, share a couple songs. And it was this one night when I got up to sing this song called The Rogers Wells Project. And I don't know what was different, but I started sharing with these kids. I wanted to tell them what it was about and how about my struggle with depression and stuff in high school. And suddenly I, I was just seeing them and I wasn't, it really wasn't about me. I, I stopped feeling like it was about me and it was very, um, it was rather sudden or a, a sudden switch that flipped in my mind between the people that I was singing to and that was all that mattered. And I sang that song and I sat down and my parents leaned across the table to me and they said, I've never seen you do that. I've never seen you so calm. And I said, I know, I, I really don't know how that, you know, what's changed. But I just, I think part of it was spiritual growth. I was just learning so much about who I am and who my, my identity in Christ, understanding that our gifts, what our gifts are here for, and, and how I don't want to be selfish with what the Lord's given me. And I don't want to, I don't want to go out and share a song to make myself famous. I don't want to not go out and share a song to protect myself. Yeah. And, and so much of that is just, it's just fear of failure. And it's, it comes, it comes back to vanity. You know, we were talking about that song. I don't want to think that I wasted that much time just because of vanity, but, and I do believe there was purpose and I wouldn't have written the songs I wrote if I had been performing probably myself during that season. But yeah, I think I was pretty, it's, self-protection. I didn't want to mess up in front of people, and so I was terrified. It's kind of interesting, because your perspective is different from when I engage with some other songwriters who are fighting that ambition in terms of wanting to be known, um, wanting to be the person who's out there, and, and you were resisting the exact opposite. So I hear what you're saying, yeah. And um, I, I realized some time ago in talking to my husband that I fear, you know, I struggled with fear of failure, but I also struggle with fear of success. And um, so basically anything that's going to make me uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. And so, and success can make you uncomfortable because it's going to drag you into, you know, yet further down the road into more new situations. And, but, you know, all that to say that moment was a big, it, it was a different moment for me, but it didn't fix everything. It was several years still before Nicole and I started going out and performing together in 2009. And, and when we started playing together, I was still, it was still a big, big struggle for me. And um, I, I did about a year of it getting better. But by the end of a year, I, I was having panic attacks nearly. I mean, I was just a mess and I had to take several months off. And, and it, it's, I came back healed in a number of ways, I think kind of do soul searching on people pleasing and approval seeking and all kinds of stuff that's common to many of us. And, yeah. and so God's just been working on me slowly. And and a lot of that you can hear in some of the songs I've written um, on the album, How Emptiness Sings. There's a song called Best Thing. And that was kind of the beginning of that processing. But I, I'm so thankful that I'm, I'm now, I'm now at a far different place I mean, it's just such a better place. I can really enjoy the music and enjoy people so much more now. 
So what's kind of your end game at this point in terms of as an artist and a songwriter? Now that you've found a place where you're more comfortable, not completely comfortable, but more comfortable with performance, and um, and you have established somewhat of a platform here as a, as a songwriter and now more as a performer, do you have aspirations? Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I, I think it's probably a really good thing to have aspirations. I feel like I've, I hold things very loosely, at least in terms of my quote-unquote success, whatever that looks like or means. I really, really not wanted to get hung up on a worldly definition of success and what that looks like. I, I guess my, my aspiration is to keep getting better instead of getting worse at what I do. <laughs> That's the main thing. And um, I would like to think I have a few more records in me, but I'm not getting younger and I feel some pressure there, not from myself because I feel like I'm just getting started. I feel like I'm just starting to figure things out. I don't know how much longer everybody else will want to hear what I've got to say. Have you tried pursuing wor uh, working with a label and getting a release through a regular label? Or is are you, are you choosing the independent route because you're an independent person? Or is it that the doors were shut or a combination? Yeah, I never pursued it because uh, when I was very young, I wasn't wanting to do this. So by the time I decided to make my own records and perform, I kind of assumed, probably rightly so, that I was not what they were looking for. I wasn't willing to go out and tour incessantly. And at the same time, the record, the, the music business was going through such, and has been and still is going through such kind of upheaval yeah. that they're signing fewer people. So I, I really knew that I wasn't, you know, going to be, if I had been, like if age and life circumstances weren't in the picture, would I be looking for that? It's kind of a toss-up, I think, if I still think I wouldn't be able to do it without, because of who I am, because of my personality and the way I feel about my writing, I'm very stubborn, and I want to say what I want to say, and I do have that kind of, a bit of rebel in me for that, so I don't think there's a box that I would fit in, unless it was maybe an indie, a small indie label, and I would, I mean, I'd welcome the help for sure, that would come along with that. So if I could find, you know, if there was a label who wouldn't ask me to compromise what I felt was the integrity of my songwriting. You mentioned a couple times as we've been talking, uh, Masterpiece Ministries. Yes. So you're going to have to tell me what that is because I don't know and, and probably a lot of people listening don't know either. Yeah, Masterpiece was founded actually by my parents along with Tim and Nancy Botts. Tim Botts is a really well-known he and my parents lived in Wheaton, Illinois together, which where I graduated from high school. And my mom had always loved teenagers and had a heart for teenagers and worked with youth all my growing years. And she noticed that there was this need that hadn't really been met within the churches we had been a part of, a need for encouragement and advocacy and mentorship for young artists, high school High schoolers who feel on the fringe and feel like they, they don't know what to do with themselves because they have this creative energy and instincts, but they, they, don't make, they don't know anyone who's doing what they do, and they're not really seeing a place for themselves in the church. So this idea for a camp was born, and we started brainstorming with a bunch of us. That we started this summer camp, so it's one week for summer. Well, now it's two weeks during two separate camp weeks during the summer. And what we do is we gather up to 40 students at a time. We meet in southern Kentucky, just north of Nashville, 
and we have several studios from which the kids can choose. Songwriting is one of them, and I've been facilitating songwriting workshops almost every summer since 2002 when we first started. And uh, we have photography, drama, visual arts, film and animation, creative writing, sometimes dance. And it is just the most magnificent week. It is a camp that that is so different from anything else I've seen. It got this intimacy and the kids, I think, feel safe with one another and with the staff. There's a high staff to student ratio because none of us want to rotate out. We we have so much fun and it's seriously so nourishing for each one of us to come and spend time with these creative students and with the fellow staff who are doing different art forms, practicing their art in the world and impacting culture and it's it's just invigorating. I'm so inspired by the students and their songwriting and feeling like, oh, I can do better. I can I can be freer. I I can um, I want to try new things because they are so open and so not yet boxed in by any any kind of market awareness really. And then I love that. And during the evenings, we have art and faith presentations. Travis Thrasher, our mutual friend, was one of our presenters this year as well as writing workshop and those are fascinating times for us because we all get to sit back and listen to someone often from outside the camp come in and just share their testimony of how they are out there using their art for the kingdom and some of them are practicing within the christian uh art world and and many are practicing outside of those parameters so it's absolutely fascinating and then we do a collaborative project throughout where the art forms get to kind of mix it up with each other. So it's just wonderful. And I've seen, see, I've, I've heard kids say that their whole trajectory of their life changed after that week at camp. The validation they received and the encouragement and the relationships that form between the students, they last, you know. It's unbelievable what kind of bonding happens in one week. Recently, I've had two or three t-shirts designed by one of our former students. Um, so it's really fun for us to get to know these kids both before they're big and famous. For this camp, are you taking them away to a place where the iPhones and the uh, and those distractions are gone? We do have internet out there. They, um, we encourage them, and they we've not had any problem with it. Um, we've, we encourage them to leave those turned off until break time, and they'll go call home, call mom, call girlfriend or whatever. But... For the most part, I mean, these kids are busy the whole week. They are busy making art, and they are super engaged. They they are so busy connecting with one another that we've never had anybody go off and, you know, spend time on their devices. <laughs> well, when you mention, you know, how, how quickly they bond, I think a lot of that is get them separated from those day-to-day distractions and give them something that inspires them. And then there's... there's uh, there's not necessarily even a t- much of a temptation to engage in those things because you are giving them probably what they long for as much as anything in terms of an outlet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they're so excited to be surrounded by people who get them. I mean, who are like them. And I mean, sitting across lunch tables going, you too? Oh my gosh, that's so, <laughs> I feel so <laughs> alone and I'm not so weird after all. So it's, it's really a, uh, an amazing time for, for everybody. I'm glad you shared that. That's just a couple times a year? Just separate weeks in the summer. So we had a June camp and a July camp. 
Well, I appreciate your time. I'm so glad to know about you guys and to met you sort of virtually, <laughs> virtually met you. Really appreciated your time and, and sharing with us today. Thanks, Joe, so much. I'm grateful. Wow, that was a great interview, Joe. Um, very informative. I have to say, Krista Wells, uh, when I listen to her album, sounds a lot like Sarah McLaughlin. Now, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Canadian, so maybe that's why I have that in my head because she's Canadian. But what did you think from her voice? No, actually, when I put the album on to listen to it the first time, and the album, just in case you didn't catch it, is called Feed Your Soul, available now in markets everywhere. <laughs> uh, but when I listened to it, yeah, I, when I was uh, got through, I think there's 14 tracks I got toward the end, and I'm like, man, this just, it's, first of all, it's a great album. And second of all, yeah, I definitely hear Sarah McLachlan in there. And uh, we didn't talk specifically about Sarah McLachlan being an influence, but man, with the, the piano pop and with just the clarity of her voice. You know, the thing that, <clears throat> that I continue to take away from that interview is uh, the way she described the inspiration behind the song, Come Close Now. And I can't listen to that song the same way again. And folks, if you haven't heard that song in its entirety, you need to listen to it. And, uh, and because of that, her description of that song, I've actually contacted the author of that book to make a life. And um, we may get a chance to feature him on the podcast at some point in the future. It's a, it is a beautiful book. I'm uh, about a third of the way through it now. Great. Great. Well, thanks again for doing the interview, Joe. And uh, again, we have a number of different interviews coming up. Uh, it'll be on a regular two-week rotation. Uh, we will be making people aware of when they're coming out and the frequency on our website, frequency.fm. So stay tuned to that. But for now, thank you, Joe. It's been a great uh, podcast and I'm looking forward to talking again. Thanks, Dan. Have a good one. Podcast. Looking to the past, reaching forward to the future. The Frequency Podcast.